Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. It's a new plan to create court-ordered treatment for homeless individuals with severe mental illness, about 7,000 to 12,000 people in the state. To uh, That doesn't make any sense. Hold on. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Thursday, May 26, 2022, we're talking about the most significant proposal that Governor Gavin Newsom has put forward this year on housing and homelessness. It's a new plan to create court-ordered treatment for homeless individuals with severe mental illness and addiction, which would cover about 7,000 to 12,000 people. Newsom has promoted the idea as an unprecedented effort to address the urgency and magnitude of the homelessness crisis in the state by focusing on those who need the most help. But the proposal has faced severe criticism from numerous civil liberties and some homeless advocacy groups who contend it's a forced treatment model that will unnecessarily involve the criminal justice system. So we'll be unpacking the details and arguments about the plan during this episode, and it's timely because the governor says he wants to pass his proposal as part of the state budget process, which has a June 15th deadline for approval. To talk about the plan, which the governor has dubbed Care Court, or Community Assistance Recovery and Empowerment Court, we <laughs> love our acronyms. Yes. We have, as always, the perfect guest. Who is it, Liam? So it's my colleague at the LA Times, Hannah Wiley. Hannah has been covering Care Court since the governor unveiled it in the late winter. We'll have a good chat about it. But first, the return of the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. What is it, Liam? It's the avocado of the fortnight. Correct. Our <laughs> look at the zaniest, wackiest, and other yest story in California housing in recent weeks. Where does our avocado take us this time, Liam? Well, Manuela, we are back in our most fertile avocado group, <laughs> and that is a wealthy, small enclave in Silicon Valley. Let me guess. Uh, is it Woodside, where the entire town tried to declare itself a mountain lion habitat so they wouldn't have to permit duplexes? Nope, it's not Woodside. Okay, Portola Valley, where a homeowner who might see his property rezoned for higher density in the city's plan allegedly approached Portola Valley's mayor at a public meeting and threatened to bankrupt the town with lawsuits and hire state lobbyists to oppose the idea. Mm, no, it's not there either. All right, you got me. Also, how many wealthy Silicon Valley enclaves are there? <laughs> well, I think that number apparently seems to be infinite, or at least we have one more, and that is Atherton. Atherton. Okay, give me the stats. So Atherton, population 7,000, okay, small. Average home price of 7.9 million, okay, wealthy enclave. And it's located just where you think it might be, bordering Woodside and Menlo Park and very close to Stanford University. So we got that Silicon Valley checkbox covered as well. Oh, yeah. So what's going on in Atherton? Well, you might have heard many times on this very podcast that state law forces cities to plan for new housing every eight years and that that process is now going on across California with these new housing goals much higher than they've been in the past. So Atherton, like many places, has been holding community meetings to figure out how they're going to handle setting aside enough land for 348 new homes. Almost 350. Wow. Yes. Wow, indeed. 
So one Atherton resident, and we don't know their name because they were not required to give it during this meeting, came up with one idea. Okay. <laughs> what was it? Just don't. Don't do it. What do you mean? Well, like they said, just don't. So now they understood that that idea of just not, right, could come with big fines from the state for not, you know, putting together a housing plan. Those, those fines could reach something like $100,000 a month. But they said that $1.2 million a year, that price tag, would be fine for a community like Atherton to pay. And this is to plan for housing. This isn't even to, to necessarily build it. You know that game when like people ask, if you had a million dollars, what would you do with it? This is the answer. Like, <laughs> not plan for more housing. That's what I would do. I would also just love to know how much that unnamed resident's house is worth. <laughs> mm, yes. There was more in this conversation. One resident of a neighborhood in Atherton called Lindenwood, again, this is an unnamed resident, was particularly colorful in their opposition to this housing plan. They said, quote, I would say shame on you and I hope you reconsider because Lindenwood is being carved out as the one neighborhood that will bear the brunt of all this 10 lot splits tomfoolery. Can you imagine owning a home, a nice home that you've paid a lot of money for in one of those streets? The developer comes and knocks on your door and says, gee, I want to let you know that I bought the house next door. I'm going to tear it down and I'm going to build 10 townhomes. I heard the gobbledygook that it's on the periphery of Atherton. Gee, tomfoolery and gobbledygook. I don't even know how to say that in one quote. That's outstanding. I aspire to talk like that. Well, once again, we have to thank avocado champion Angela Swartz of the Almanac local newspaper for writing up what's happening in Atherton. Thank you, Angela, for your tireless reporting on the tomfoolery in small, wealthy Silicon Valley enclaves. So moving on from the enclaves, today's episode comes to you amid a pretty busy legislative season. So we wanted to take this opportunity to catch up listeners on what's been going on in Sacramento. By the time that you listen to this episode, the deadline for bills to get out of their house of origin will have passed. So assembly bills to get out of the assembly and vice versa. There are way too many bills to get into. There were more than 100 introduced this year, but I'll give you some of the highlights. Yes, please give us some highlights. A few that I think are worthy of mention because we've discussed them here before. There's a bill by Senator Scott Weiner that would allow on-campus housing to be exempt from review under the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA, that passed out of the Senate on Tuesday. And a bill that died that we also discussed here was Assemblymember Christina Garcia's bill to incentivize local governments to convert public golf courses into affordable housing that was killed in appropriations of fiscal committee last week. So we'll talk more about bills as they may get closer to passage, but we're also in the midst of the budget season, are we not? We are indeed, Liam. So on May 13th, the governor unveiled his revised budget proposal, which is essentially an updated version of what he proposed to the legislature in January. The Senate Assembly and the governor's office will have another three weeks to negotiate that proposal in order to pass a budget by June 15th. One main difference between the January and May budget proposals is revenue projections. Newsom unveiled a shocking surplus of nearly $100 billion, which was way more than the already historic $76 billion surplus projected in January. 
Okay, so that's a lot of money, and I imagine the folks who want more housing would like a decent cut of that. What does he want to do when it comes to housing dollars, and how does that differ from what it said he wanted to do earlier? So Newsom bumped his $2 billion spending proposal from January by $500 million, which mostly would fund the conversion of underused buildings into housing and building up infrastructure in urban areas to allow for more housing, basically aligning the state's housing and energy goals. 500 million of those would go to the low-income housing tax credit, which is the largest funding source for developers to build subsidized housing. But developers argue that with such a huge surplus and housing affordability being the issue that it is, it's just not enough. There's also not much in there for home ownership, which the Senate specifically has made a priority this year and put forth some ambitious proposals on. Okay, so I guess we'll see some negotiations now on housing dollars. How about homelessness? So on the homelessness front, most of the $2 billion the governor proposed in January would go toward funding tiny homes and other transitional shelters for people now living on the streets. And then the rest would go toward cleaning up the growing encampments that are at the top of voters' minds right now. Fast forward to this month, the governor said he wanted to add $700 million on top of that spending for more camp cleanups, more tiny homes, $150 million to expand his signature home key project and his care court proposal, which is the subject of this week's episode. Right. So, and then the home key again is the conversion of the sort of motel properties into permanent homeless housing It doesn't sound, though, like besides that home key set aside, there's much in there for permanent housing, right? And that's a key criticism that homelessness advocates have pointed out. Tiny homes are temporary and don't really get at the root of homelessness, housing. The reasoning behind the governor's plan is that California's already set aside $12 billion for homelessness in last year's budget, which is still being rolled out. And it's going to take years to build the 33,000 units projected those dollars could create. So the idea is to bridge that gap temporarily. Okay, so a lot of our discussion here today is going to be about care court. So can you break down those numbers and give us a brief overview before we jump into our conversation with Hannah? So there's 65 million set aside for care court, mostly for the the administration of it. What it is, is basically aims to help people with serious mental illness and substance use disorder that's so severe that they can't keep themselves safe by compelling them into the types of services that they need through the judicial system. So you may know that I'm an avid fan of Britney Spears, or at least my wife is, but what you're talking about sounds a little bit like conservatorship. That's the thing that everyone was trying to free Britney from. So Liam, I actually didn't know that, but it makes me very happy to learn you have good taste. I love Brittany too. There is a big distinction, although many of these similar questions have come up around this discussion, like whether this type of control violates people's rights or protects them, how easy or how hard it is to compel people into these types of programs. Britney's was a probate conservatorship. These are primarily designed for people with intellectual disabilities or dementia, and they also go on indefinitely until there's a petition to end it by the conservatee. Okay, but this care court plan is handled differently. So the conservatorships that we typically talk about for people experiencing severe mental illness, like schizophrenia, are called the Lanterman Petrus Short, or LPS, 
And the main complaint is that it's really hard to get people into those types of conservatorships because they curtail rights more severely than this other kind and Britney's kind, usually involving locked placements and use of involuntary meds. The governor's office, which crafted this particular proposal, says that care court strikes a balance as the court would order a tailored plan involving some combination of housing, medication, and services, as well as provide the person a full support team, clinical, as well as a public defender and a supporter would help the participant make care decisions. Okay, and these care court placements would be shorter too, is right? Exactly, yeah. So participation would be limited to one year, and then there's possibility too of a one-year extension. Okay, so again, right before we kind of start this longer discussion, why don't you try to sum up for us what's at stake with what the governor's proposal is trying to do? This would be a huge overhaul of how the state currently deals with the subset of people that we see on the streets dealing with the most severe forms of mental illness. But it's important to state that this is not a solution to homelessness writ large, nor is it trying to be. It would target between 7,000 and 12,000 people. And not all of them would necessarily be homeless either. That's around 10% of the state's homeless population and probably even lower given how the population figures are usually an undercount. Okay, but it's still a big deal? Yes. And it brings out this really important question, which is about why the state hasn't been able to deal with the broad needs of this group of people. Advocates say that the problem isn't necessarily that these people need to be forced into treatment. It's that the state doesn't provide the adequate services such as housing or mental health to adequately deal with the underlying problems. So it's led to very heated discussions. I see. Okay, let's talk about all this with Hannah. We are here with Hannah Wiley. She's a staff writer with the Los Angeles Times based in our state capitol bureau in Sacramento. Hannah, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Liam and Manuela. So let's start. Why don't you take us through the details of how this process would work for someone who was targeted by the program? The proposal so far is that family members, first responders, behavioral health providers, just a limited list, but it's a long enough list to allow a number of people to petition a civil court judge and ask for a review of the individual and to determine if they're eligible for care plan, so-called care plan. And it's really only intended to help about 7,000 to 12,000 people. These are folks who are cycling in and out of hospitals and jails or who have severe mental health, substance abuse issues, who have been living with homelessness or in encampments under highway overpasses. I mean, really think that these individuals that the bill or that the plan would target are in the most dire circumstances in California. That's that's how it's written so far. Okay, so the care plan. So like what happens? This person has to show up in a courtroom or like talk to us about like the mechanics of it. That's a question that's outstanding still for a lot of people or a lot of stakeholders, but there would need to be some mental health evaluation of the individual and make sure that they qualify, that they meet like the most severe, I guess, boxes. And then under that, the idea is that they would participate in the program too. And so it's a court-ordered treatment. It's court-ordered treatment, but also the idea is to have this individual opt into the participation process as well. But yeah, mental health evaluation, looking at whether they've been in the hospital, how many times, 
looking at if they have what kind of criminal record they might have, looking at what kind of substance abuse there might be. And then these individuals would have the, the idea is that they would be suffering from really severe psychotic disorders or really severe mental health. Okay, so let's now assume that someone has been approved, I suppose. What is their life like after that? They would be connected in theory, right? Uh, they would be connected to first, you know, a public defender and a so-called supporter who would serve as a kind of personal advocate for these individuals throughout the process. And so a plan gets approved for up to a year to start, and they could be connected to medication if that's required for stabilization, other behavioral health plans that would be unique to that individual and their needs. And then also they would be connected to housing. So if they're suffering from homelessness and they need a certain kind of behavioral health housing or mental health treatment bed, they would in theory, county, a city, continuum of care, they all would be involved in the process to connect this individual to housing. They could also, maybe a family member steps in and says, you know, I have an extra bedroom and I can take this person in during their care plan or to help get them stable. The housing is really a key question here because there's so many different kinds of needs in housing and California is severely lacking all of them. But that would be the first kind of step. And then after a year, if it's determined, hey, they can graduate from the program, they've done really well, they're stable, then they would be able to do that. But if they need it for another year, then it can be authorized for in total up to two years. And But the key thing, though, is that housing or that mental health bed or that shelter or whatever it is, that would be mandatory, right? Like, that's the deal. You're actually, like, forcing someone off the street into that facility or housing or whatever it is that ultimately gets assigned. Is that correct? That's the key part, is if these individuals are in such severe need, then requires a court to intervene and say, hey, everyone who provides these services, you need to step up and you need to actually connect this individual to whatever kind of mental health care, behavioral health care and housing and specific housing to that individual's need. You need to provide it then. What happens if there just isn't a slot available, for example, at a mental health facility or a housing option for them? That's the question that a lot of these behavioral health providers who show up and to provide testimony or to ask questions of lawmakers that that's lawmakers themselves have asked, like, is there enough housing available? I mean, Newsom has pledged some $1.5 billion recently to bulk up California's mental health housing supply. And so the administration's argument is that we have enough housing available for these individuals to get care court going, that we've put enough money into the California's housing stock to get more mental health beds online. That has been contested among the people who actually fulfill some of these services because they say there is a gap in between the money promised and set aside in the budget and the actual number of beds that go online. There's a gap in sometimes what takes years to actually do that. What's different about this effort compared with other existing homelessness programs and other conservatorship, for example, that forces an individual to get treatment? Largely, you're creating a new court system here. It's the care court system, right? So that's the first thing. That's like this new shiny program care court, right? That's different. And then it's different from conservatorships because in theory, and what the administration contends 
is that this is a voluntary program, that it doesn't go to the extreme lengths of the conservatorship where you're locked in, no matter how much you might not want that, that this still considers a participant's individual needs and say and input. And that's why they have that so-called supporter to help guide them through the process and to take into consideration whatever they feel like their needs, their individual needs are. In reading your coverage of this and, and other people writing about it, it seems like one of the main things that have come up, come up a lot, is a lot of concerns about the program sort of lacking details at this point. What kind of details are still missing? And I think we've gone over a few of them, but like things like the cost of it and exactly how it worked, none of that is like precisely clear, right? So first is, as I've mentioned, the housing. Like, is there enough housing available? The second is, while Newsom has said that there's billions and billions of dollars available in behavioral health funding, and that doesn't take into account, according to the county's CSAC or... The argument from the, the association represents all the 58 counties in the state. So much alphabet soup. They've made the argument that like, yes, there's billions available, then we have historic levels of funding, which is great, but that doesn't take into consideration that there has been decades before this a total dearth of funding for counties to provide these behavioral health services. So like we're going to need more money. And a big question is like, we need to know who's going to be accountable for these services too. Like cities need to play a role. Counties need to play a role. Sure. But also everybody who provides care, who provides housing, who has some level of input here needs to step up and actually be held accountable to fulfilling these obligations under care court. Talk to us a little bit about the politics of all this, because the, the measure passed 7-0 out of appropriations yesterday in the Senate floor, 38-0, and yet it has brought out heated opposition. There's been very lively debate about it. So how has all that worked? Because just objectively, it looks like it's sailing through. You both have covered politics in the Capitol and you know that when you gear up for like an hours long hearing, that it's usually because a proposal is like, is it going to pass? Is it not going to pass? Like how much is it going to pass by? And so these care court hearings that we've seen in judiciary health that we saw on the Senate floor, like They've taken some time and Dr. Mark Galley, other people who are supporting this proposal, who've shown up to testify on its behalf. Dr. Mark Galley, Health and Human Services Secretary in California, they've faced a lot of questions from both Democrats and Republicans. And then at the end, you get to the roll call and the bill passes easily. It passes with plenty of votes to spare. And so the politics here is that I think Democrats have a lot of questions and they're facing probably intense pressure from some of the more left-leaning organizations that are influential in the Capitol who've come out against care courts, such as the ACLU, Disability Rights California, Western Center on Law and Poverty. I mean, the list goes on. But I think Democrats are probably also facing simultaneously pressure from the administration. I think there's also at play here the acknowledgement that what has so far been proposed and what's been so far used to solve the homelessness and drug addiction and mental health crisis in California has not worked. And Democrats are asking themselves, how can we better solve this problem? None of them are immune to it. Every single one of them in their district are going home to residents and getting faced with questions of what the heck are you doing to solve this problem? So the politics there are that Democrats are getting intense opposition pressure from the organizations that support them, but they're also getting intense pressure from the governor 
And their constituents, of course. And then I think, you know, the Republicans, not that the Democrats necessarily need their votes, but the Republicans look at this proposal and think they largely support the framework. I think they've just obviously taken the opportunity to hold Democrats accountable and to question Democrats during the hearings because they would argue like, well, this is about time, right? Nothing you've done so far has really worked. I want to go back to the housing question I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast about the overall shortage of homes is that it's a, a key driver of the housing affordability problems in the state and certainly a sh- an intense shortage of homes, even more so for lowest income and homeless residents. Other interventions that exist have struggled to move people into permanent housing, transitional housing, because that permanent housing doesn't exist. So it's tough to get out of a tiny home or a shelter if you can't be placed in a permanent bed. And so like, I guess... I'm struggling to understand how the governor can say there's enough housing or enough beds or enough spaces to accommodate this population, because if there was, why aren't they being used now for the people who clearly need them? What the administration has told me during my reporting is like, hey, listen, Newsom has pledged billions of dollars in the last two years to add more housing stock. These beds are coming And then that's the question of like, well, how fast, how fast can they get online and how fast can they become available in order to make care court work? So I think the thing to remember here is that these are also seven to 12,000 people. So it's a smaller population than the 161,000 estimated people living in homelessness in California. So this is a smaller population. The argument is that, well, we have enough beds for seven to 12,000 people, but However, the problem here is that there are a diverse set of needs for these individuals. They don't all need a locked treatment facility. So getting to your point, Liam, of like, is there enough of all types of housing available for these people? And I think the question is probably not yet. No, like not everyone's going to need a locked treatment facility and not everyone's going to want or need a tiny home because tiny homes Some of these bridge housing structures, they're not real housing. They serve for the short term. But is that where someone wants to live for a long time to get stable and to start their lives with autonomy? Probably not. And so then it becomes a question of, do we have enough housing, affordable housing? And absolutely not. We do not have enough affordable housing in California. In terms of timing, because there is this wait until those housing units actually come online, is there the possibility that this would only really go into effect when that housing is actually available? Or what have those conversations looked like? The idea is that there is enough housing available and there will be even more as the program comes into effect to provide housing for these individuals. So the idea is no. I've listened in on these hearings before. I've been in these hearings. And the argument is we don't have time to waste. People are dying. We have to get them into help now, which I think those who are opposed to the idea say, we agree. We know that people are suffering. Please help us put them somewhere. Please help us ramp up services. Please fund the programs that we need to be able to connect them to once their caseload or their case is added to our workload. Because there are certain programs that might be beneficial here also with the housing that are just not fully funded yet. Talk to us a little bit about the civil liberties concerns, because I know that that has been something that's that's come up quite a bit. That's the main argument that a lot of these more influential, bigger left-leaning groups who are opposed to the idea keep saying. And some of the experts that I've talked to who work with the homeless population and work with them from a legal context, they've raised questions about like, 
you are stripping someone of their civil liberties. And even though you say that Care Corps is designed to include a participatory, a volunteer element to it, it is not. When you involve the courts, when you actually have a public defender added into the equation, then it signals that this is not a voluntary commitment. And I talked to Dr. Margot Cushell, who's an expert in San Francisco and working with this population. She's at the top of the field. And she says, like, absolutely, we need more dedication and we need more attention on this population. But something that she's said that sticks with me is it takes a really long time to gain the trust of this population. And it really takes a long time to get them into the treatment. But when you gain their trust and get them into the treatment, it's way more effective than when you mandate it. And if you are to tell somebody that you have to take this medication or you have to participate in these programs, then you are, this is what other experts have told me, that that you're taking their rights away. And you never want to do that to anybody, but certainly in a country that stands on civil liberties and personal freedoms, et cetera, et cetera. We talked a lot about who is against this idea. Can you give us a rundown of who's supportive and why? Mayors of California's most populous cities have come out in full support of this plan of the framework and saying, absolutely, this is what we need more dedicated resources. We need more attention. We need more help solving the homelessness and drug addiction, mental health crisis that are in full display on our streets. They are really desperate for some extra help. So they've come out in support and a huge proponent of that has been Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg. I mean, he's big in the mental health field, but then let's see. So the cha- California Chamber of Commerce recently endorsed the bill, came out in support, and so had some other like business groups. And then I think one that you absolutely have to mention is groups that represent family members with loved ones who suffer from these ailments or who suffer from severe homelessness, continued homelessness. And the ones I've talked to have been hopeful that maybe this will finally be a way without conservatorships that don't always work or without relying on jails and hospitals to keep someone safe for a night. Hey, maybe this will finally be the tool to help my sister, my brother, my dad, my mom, my whoever get inside and get help. Let's talk about the budget and staffing funds for all of this. I've covered extensively how much of a staffing shortage there is in the already existing homelessness and mental health fields. How does this interact with those shortages and does it provide a way to to fill that gap? So what we've seen in the budget so far includes close to $65 million this year to begin CareCorps. And like, I think close to $40 million, $39 million would be spent to provide the courts, the judiciary system with conducting hearings, providing other sort resources related to a care framework, but some of that would go toward financing supporter program, getting these so-called supporters actually trained. A little bit would go to the counties for training and technical assistance, but getting back to your question of like, does this actually help the workforce? I've not seen those details yet. And that's a remaining question is like, is there the workforce available? Are there enough mental health providers to kickstart this plan? As you mentioned, Manuela, there's a shortage of these providers, of these specialists, and especially in the Central Valley or in the Inland Empire or in far off corners of California who have historically been overlooked, who have historically like not been able to necessarily get the funding or the personnel to hire and add to their payroll in this industry. So how much of this idea 
do you think is about dealing with the real and legitimate problems of those who are homeless with mental health and addiction concerns versus how much of this do you think is like a response to the fact that people, you know, house people in many parts of the state are seeing these sorts of folks on the streets more frequently. So in other words, is this more of a response to people who need the help or more to people who don't want to see people who need this help outside in their community? Polls show that Californians care about homelessness and housing. Polls show that Newsom has received poor marks on this very topic, that he has received poor reviews of how he has handled the homelessness and housing crisis in California. It is top of voters' mind. And it's 2022. Guess who's on the ballot this fall? And not just him. Other Democrats who are going back to their districts and constantly faced with a barrage of questions about what are you doing about this crisis? The business community is frustrated. That's why you see, I think the California Chamber of Commerce has raised concerns about like, hey, these are really big issues in our downtown centers. People care a lot about this. Our businesses really are invested in this issue. So how much of it do I think is because potentially housed people in California are angry? I mean, look at the data. Politicians are facing a lot of pressure from Californians on this topic. Along those same lines, how much of a problem has sort of lack of willingness to go into treatment or to go into housing been an issue versus those resources literally just not being there? I think that would be a question more so for the people on the ground. From my reporting, I've talked to people who say it takes six, seven, eight times to go out and make contact with a person before they can actually trust you enough to come inside and to get the treatment. But we've seen reporting from our colleagues throughout the state that also show that cities and counties who promise services are not following through and being able to do that. I talked to folks in Fresno recently, behavioral health providers who said, it takes us a really long time to gain the trust of people to come inside and actually get help. We just hope that we have a spot in whatever program they might need available that on that day that they decide I'm ready for help. So it's a twofold issue, I think. Okay. So Hannah, great context for all of this. Is there anything else that you think our very vast and influential audience should know about Care Court at this stage? Listen, it sailed through the Senate. It got a lot of support in the Senate. I think there are some more skeptical players in the assembly. I think it's worth paying attention to what happens in the assembly I think it's really also worth paying attention to what kind of housing recent amendments show that the administration is trying to make housing a more explicit point in the care plan. I think it's really important to hold people accountable to is there are there enough beds? That's just an ongoing question I have. Are there enough beds right now to get this going? What about funding? Is there going to be more increased funding in the final June budget and what kind of opposition is going to come up in the assembly? And is it going to be from Democrats? And maybe negotiations are taking place behind the stage and I'll needle people for information on that. But I think some of that debate might be worth tuning into. Governor has said that he wants this passed by, along with the budget. So within the coming weeks, is that still the timeline to your knowledge? So far, that's what I still understand is that the governor is really eager to sign this into law and that the administration thinks that this is not so much and if it's signed, it's a when it's signed. And everything I've reported so far is has been July 1st. Well, thank you so much. This has been so helpful. Thank you, Hannah.
Thank you so much for listening to Gimme Shelter. Please continue to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and other podcast services. I guess especially so if you like what we're doing. Uh, That's important. Thank you, as always, to our editor, Victor Figueroa, as well. He's great. My name is Liam, and I'm with the LA Times. You could find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from CalMatters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias M. Thank you so much for listening.